This is the London FinTech Podcast, brought to you by your host, Mike Ballaman, bridging the worlds of suits and t-shirts, of finance and technology, bringing you insights, stories, and inspiration from the golden age of opportunity and innovation happening in London right now. Hi, this is Mike Ballaman. And this is London FinTech Podcast, episode 176, brought to you in association with Smart Pension and the EnlistedBoard.com. And I'm delighted to be joined today by Nigel Verdon, three times UK FinTech founder, Evolution 1997, currently Cloud 2007, and most recently Rails Bank in 2016, to discuss the Khalifa report on UK FinTech. In the 2020 budget, the Chancellor asked Ron Khalifa, former chairman of WorldPay and now member of the Court of the Bank of England, to conduct an independent review to identify priority areas to support the UK's fintech sector. The review formally launched in July 2020 with objectives of supporting the growth and widespread adoption of UK fintech and for maintaining the UK's global fintech reputation. It's a very complex question to fully address why fintech was created in the UK in the first place, and also so successfully at that. We've heard various pieces of this story in various episodes over time. However, and this is a super important point, We need to differentiate between, and let's use these terms very crudely, macroeconomic and microeconomic policies, or if you like, strategic and tactical. So examples of the former would be matters like creating entrepreneurs' tax relief, a sustainable fiscal position, as well as light-touch regulation, which were some of the notable factors a decade ago that helped accelerate the growth in many tech sectors. Now, of course, we have, as listeners will know in my perspective, a cultural revolution and a governance revolution of the elite, or more simply tyranny. Just recently, for example, the government introduced a £5,000 fine for going abroad on holiday when over 50% of the UK adults have been vaccinated and deaths are running at de minimis. Even the Spectator and Daily Telegraph, very loyal supporters of the government, are starting to get a little bit antsy about the fact that we are under more draconian conditions now than a year ago. Cronyism is in the tens of billions of pounds, as is fraud, and the budget has been devastated. Over one third of a trillion pounds has been spent in the past year. These we can call strategic or macroeconomic level, and I cannot see that they are anything other than catastrophic for almost all sectors of the economy, and I've heard many stories of fintech pain at the more real-world end of the spectrum. The more digital world end of the spectrum of fintech is a slightly different matter. However, in terms of this report, Mr Khalifa was not asked to address these issues unsurprisingly, but the tactical and sectoral issues of fintech, and we can't hold him to account in the slightest for the UK's macroeconomic and authoritarian ruination. So, after noting the fact that the big picture, as always, is most important, which I see as freedom, lack of government interference, and a strong economy helping all sectors, we'll focus on the report itself. When it comes to government reports, I'm deeply suspicious of the kind of five-year Stalinist plan that Whitehall knows best. However, we must also emphasise that a decade ago, George Osborne, in one of his successes, was very effective in creating the right climate. So, with all these matters, there is a spectrum to what you might call state centralism or state socialism, where the government decides everything and disembowels the private sector, to, at the opposite end of the spectrum, the fact that every government in the world, at every time, creates a climate via its macroeconomic policies, even if there are no microeconomic ones, which promote or hinder the development of business. So, we have a huge spectrum, about 50,000 miles wide, about where the Khalifa report might land. So, there's no one better than Nigel, whose third appearance on the show, 
to talk to us to help us navigate where the report lies on the spectrum, Nigel having founded three successful fintechs. Good morning, Nigel. Thank you for joining me on the show today. Morning, Mike, and thanks again for the uh, <laughs> the hat trick show. <laughs> yes, exactly. You should get a uh, you should get a small. Small prize. Well, well, actually, talking of talking of small and talking of distancing, there is an irony about uh, about our meeting right now, which is that um, the last time we met, you were in Islington, and one of the important things. I mean, we don't have time to discuss it all, but one of the important things about being an entrepreneur is control of costs, and I think you took control of costs to a, a record high. That, in terms of my now decades-long career, you and I met in the smallest meeting room I've ever met, where we had to sort of uh, shuffle our knees, sort of modestly, sort of uh, like uh, uh, ladies wearing kimonos, uh, almost, because we're absolutely on top of each other. And now, my God, that kind of thing is probably illegal for uh, forevermore. So yes, we've gone from being, a, you've, you've gone from being the nearest person to me in a business meeting ever to uh, just being a bunch of pixels on, on Zoom, actually. I think it's just a reflection of the world at the moment, of the, the past year. But it, it, it's also a in some ways, it's been a positive movement because it's suddenly realised you don't have to do a ton of travel, which is probably unnecessary, to actually do business. We acquired uh, bid on and acquired part of Wirecard last year. Uh, we've grown from uh, just around 100 people to over 350 uh, people now in, in the company and uh, grown our client base and everything, and it's all been done digitally. And so one of the things, I, another observation on on not having to travel is uh, attending conferences is an important thing for marketing the company as in speaking at various places. Being able to do like three to four a week from your desk is so much easier and each of those would have taken half a day or a day's travel and so you, you get a lot of your life back because of it. But you still need human contact and that's, a, that's an important thing but I think we can be a lot more effective and probably less tired at doing business uh, with uh, the the by being used to being being forced to use Zoom and uh, knowing that we've each got a digital presence now, a set of pixels that represent us, as you say, as opposed to physical location. Yes, going back to uh, old world FS um, or, or trading, uh, sort of barbell approaches. I mean, the uh, you're quite right that everybody has been accelerated, whether they wanted it or not, um, in understanding how to leverage. The digital world uh, appropriately. I'm not so sure actually about uh, Zoom being less tiring. I mean, Bridget does a lot of Zooms and, and she's found it more tiring and there's been some uh, research which actually shows why Zoom's tiring, one of which, uh, and there's some various important tips actually, one of which is don't look at yourself because subconsciously that sort of causes sort of, uh, sort of anxiety. And the second is don't make the picture of the other person too large. This is sort of proper psychological research because if you make the picture really large of the other person, then the primate brain, when you see a large face very, very near you, it's either going to sort of uh, murder you or mate with you. <laughs> so, so the tips for making Zoom meetings and all other types of meetings are less tiring are actually to turn off your own picture uh, so you're not self-conscious, even subconsciously, uh, and to keep the other person's picture quite small. Anyway, back to the barbell. Uh, as we discussed a couple of episodes ago, all this is well and good, but as you say, uh, you do need the social contact. And in terms of binding a company together, you need the social glue that comes from the sort of the interactions. But anyway, let's hope we get there sooner rather than later. Now, normally, Nigel, we talk about your the guest's career journey at this point, but we've talked about your career journey a couple of times. I think the favourite story I quite like is that you started off sort of 
painting cars or painting cars with computers. Um, and this had the great benefit that it's very obvious when there's an error because someone says you haven't painted the left passenger door. Whereas once one goes into the world of pure tech, bugs and, and errors are, are so much less evident. And uh, I think I was hypothesizing that it's a great advantage to have done something kind of in the physical world like that, because it gives you an attention to detail and a thoroughness, which is invaluable when it comes both to FS and to tech, because mistakes in FS and mistakes in tech can be quite um, costly. I was an engineer at the engineering university, and uh, the first job was in uh, General Motors, was EDS, which is owned by General Motors. And um, you, because of that discipline of engineering and proper engineering, and uh, the, the, the fact that you, you had to test everything, that uh, discipline has been super useful throughout the, the career, especially when you're looking at risk and risk management. You're looking at uh, do the right thing first, check your work, all that type of thing. It is a good discipline because I think the, the way people, quite a lot of people learn software programming now these days, it's just like, just keep iterating it. If it breaks, it doesn't matter uh, and things. Whereas if you put a bit more time into it and have a more engineering discipline, uh, you don't need to use the excuse of being uh, like using rapid development techniques. You can still have proper QA in it. And especially when you're moving money, then it's, it becomes a motive if you cause problems with that money. So the pure software only fintech companies, which are just pure tech, have less of an issue, but those of us uh, like ourselves who are direct clearers of euros and sterling, principal members of Visa and MasterCard, where you're actually touching and holding billions of uh, pounds of money and dollars of money, it becomes very, very important to have that same engineering discipline. And actually, a lot of our engineering team are actually uh, from the proper engineering backgrounds. Yes, I was moaning a few episodes ago about the fact that going back to tech and tech in general, this isn't fintech, and tech in general not being nowhere near as good unless rapid application development, all this kind of stuff, continuous upgrade being shite at times. Because uh, the other day I updated a, my tablet and it, and it broke, but it's unfixable. It, you know, it's just sort of bricked. So it's sort of dead. So yes, uh, you can't do that kind of stuff if you're moving trillions around. So before we dive into the report, uh, as I say, you founded, um, it's getting to be a habit, Nigel, I don't really noticed actually, but you founded three fintechs over a, a decade or so. And so before we look at the report and macro, micro, blah, 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 what do you feel from an empirical perspective was the kind of things in the environment in the UK where you formed all three? The absence of which or the presence of which made it easier or harder to be an entrepreneur creating things ab initio? Sure. Some of the main things are is, uh, UK is a massive culture of innovation and always has been for, through centuries. Look at uh, all sorts of uh, innovations that were created that have changed people's lives and then are de facto within lives uh, and stuff. It's UK and Scotland as well, because I was just thinking of Tarmac, for example. So there's a, there's a culture of innovation uh, within the UK and there's a, the uh, professor in the shed is celebrated if you say the Dyson type character, and uh, that's one extreme. The other one, for from a fintech perspective, is the UK has always had uh, a regulation approach, which was do the right thing. Uh, so it was uh, principle based regulation as opposed to rule book regulation, and principle based regulation I think gets uh, you're less scared of breaching the rules because you've got to think about it. 
and if Improvy did the right thing, then then you 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 you've got a fair amount of confidence that you have done the right thing. And so that that environment of creating new fintechs, etc., was an environment, a regulatory environment, uh, to that I think creates innovation within itself. And then the FCA put some like the sandbox and others in place. The final part is. The UK for fintech, because of the natural place of London's sat within the financial services world, and there's a lot of people in the capital markets world who went through all the changes in the 90s, like yourself and myself, were some of the main founders of the fintechs in London. So they'd been to that wave in capital markets beforehand, and in the 1990s, 2000s, had careers and moved out of that back into uh, the tech and had that real understanding to fintech came out of sort of banking. Banking was a lot slower and sleepier type of business than capital markets. There was people who'd been through a similar shift before when capital markets went from analog to digital for like, it used to be television feeds as opposed to actually uh, IP-based feeds. And... uh, with a regulatory environment, 2007, 2008 uh, was a massive contributor because people lost trust in the financial system. And so the, the door was open for people to do things that were interesting and new. And a lot of us all got fired in that time because banks were cutting back because of 2007, 2008, or maybe redundant, whichever, like, like, like look at it. So there was this talent pool arriving, looking at new, interesting things. Technology had just gone over the, the curve of being cheap to set up a new business. Amazon AWS is like just coming out the, the garage. There was a regulatory environment that was good. The consumer was hating the old world and stuff. So it was a perfect storm at that time. London was one of the centres, New York to some extent. And then there was some capital starting to appear. People at like Antimus uh, had launched in, uh, in London and brought capital markets experience into money and theses around, if you've seen the Amazon Bay video that, uh, that Sean did, uh, that showed what is the future of, of finance. So some of all that thinking all just happened at that moment in time. And then you've got some other people who are just annoyed at the financial system, like Kristen Tarvet, uh, saying there must be a better way, and just said, I'm going to go and do it. That's what created London. Then there's an ecosystem built around it. EIS, SEIS, uh, tax environment and others which are helpful for for bringing early stage money which is what you need to like the touch paper to get people going and take risk and, and get returns on that risk that also helped and then traditionally you have lawyers who understand financial services in london you had accountants you had a ton of other advisory type uh, capabilities you've had some commentators all start to come out of the woodwork and blogs and all these type of things all were there that it still is there in London if we're coming onto the report. And so there's some other things, the, the, the elephant in the room called Brexit and the impact of it. I think just the UK has got to rethink how it can t- use its massive advantage uh, to still uh, be, be the place you start fintech as opposed to uh, grow your fintech because the elephant in the room with Brexit is uh, you've taken a market from 720 million people down to 60 million people. And that's that's quite a sort of like a shot. If you planned on accessing those markets and now you can't, or you can, but you've got to now build parallel infrastructure to operate in Europe. And we had to do that ourselves. And so is a ton of other colleagues uh, to be able to and, and invest heavily 
So just like we're doing a new country. So Europe is now a new country uh, to us and with all the costs that go with it. Yes, well, uh, that's an excellent exposition, uh, as I imagined, because you not only were there, but you did it a number of times in a number of decades. And the Brexit point is well made. Any significant change to arrangements introduces costs. And just purely from a, a fintech perspective, let's just take the, the average of the fintech costs for fintechs in London. The important thing, as you say, is to, I'm not sure it's in this um, report so much, I didn't read all the words, but is to ensure that the, the benefits <laughs> are taken advantage of. So it's a significant change. Change involves costs um, and benefits. And it's a question of, will we leverage the benefits? And uh, so let's, let's get into the report itself. It's available online. Uh, it's Ron Khalifa. It's probably easiest way to look at it. K-A-L-I-F-A, if anybody wants to Google it. Um, it is 108 pages. So in a short period of time, we're not going to be able in the slightest, really, to do justice to all of the, the hard work that's gone into it. A lot of uh, the 108 pages, as you can imagine, is from the perspective of perhaps the average listener, uh, worthy but dull, but it's still worthy. Um, we will only we are be able to look at the, the big picture stuff. But let's just start with this, the super big picture thing, which is that you talk about the changes in, 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 in FS. Um, and, and as you know, I'm concerned about governance very much these days and culture. What are the changes in governance and culture that I've seen as far as the state is concerned over my time in FS is that back in the day, back in the 80s, pre-Blair basically, the House of Lords was the House of Lords. There were a lot of folks like Lord Rockley, chairman of Climewaps, and many more, who uh, at the end of the day would trot down to Westminster. You would have an influx from around London of businessmen coming into the sort of the heart of government and not just contributing uh, the odd report, but being part of the governance of the country for some time. Now, I think one of the challenges, going back to leveraging the benefits of of Brexit, but also the governance challenges of Parliament the past few years, where Cromwell's words have have resonated many times, which is off the top of my head, and this is a rough guess because I can't remember the stats, but I don't know. I'd say it's 500 MPs. Uh, Off the top of my head, there's a hell of a lot of lawyers and and all the kind of people you'd expect. Uh, But actually, bugger all businessmen in there. I mean, it was like, you know, I can't remember. I can't remember. It was was about 2%, 3%, 4%. And I do have a concern that what drives economies is being forgotten. And actually, funny enough, I was just reading a blog post this morning saying that the the turnover of staff in the Treasury is 25%, which is the same as call centres. So 10 years ago, uh, I I think the government uh, was doing that. Um, We've yet to see whether the current government... There was, a good, uh, there was a good meme on LinkedIn I saw this morning of the Lord of the Rings, the picture of the, of the ring, and, 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 and someone was about to put the ring on, who it was, Sauron or something, or, or I don't know, Frodo, I don't know, Frodo, I think. And uh, this ring has got, you know, uh, uh, COVID, COVID regulations. Uh, and the ring goes on, and then, you know, of course, the third picture is uh, Frodo being reluctant to take it off, and government saying, oh, my precious. And so, actually, as we speak tomorrow... Uh, there's going to be a vote on extending the powers for another uh, six months. So it remains to be seen. It's not something we would address now, but it remains to be seen whether, going back to the points you make, governance as a whole in Whitehall, in Westminster, appreciates the factors that led to the Industrial Revolution, say, or led to 1960s pop music, say, or led to Dyson, or led to fintech, and FS booming, or whether we've just gone into this kind of um, hyper-state 
centralism. So I think the big picture we have to put to one side, um, but I definitely have the opinion that that is the major factor. You can't really just look at changing details of listing regulations, for example, requirements, without looking at the fact that, say, I don't know, I can't remember what they've done now to uh, entrepreneur's tax relief, but if you screw entrepreneur's tax relief, then plenty of people go abroad. The question is, how can the UK maintain its position as world leader in starting uh, fintechs? It still remains that, and also an investment, uh, the capital uh, seems to be coming into the UK as well, UK-based startups. If you look at it from a, from a macro perspective, it's the UK is also a great launch pad uh, with uh, minimal bureaucracy to start businesses in the first case. If you try to set up a company in Germany, in uh, Lithuania, in France and others, it's an administrative pain. It's easy, it's easy enough to get through, but it's just a pain. The UK, it's done in less than an hour. You can have your own limited company set up and everything. And, and in there's complaints about red tape and running companies in the UK. It's extremely easy to run them. A point in case is uh, digital signatures are accepted, uh, which are not accepted uh, in parts of France and Germany. And Lithuania, for example, it's you've still got a wet ink on everything left, right and centred and notarised and, and stuff. So for, for no actual material gain on the uh, on the governance. So UK still got that, and I think should celebrate it. In terms of the fintech side, you've, you've, to, to have fintechs and to be a place to start them, you've got to attract the entrepreneur. And the entrepreneur and be an environment where entrepreneurs can create business and can also benefit themselves and also benefit society, uh, for example. And that, that comes down to... Okay, if you if you have a draconian tax environment, which the UK has started becoming, and taking entrepreneurs' relief away and 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 things and the income tax and fintechs don't pay themselves dividends. You'll see there's a whole lot of uh, you call it a debate about oh all all these people have found companies or pay themselves dividends. Well, we're primarily all venture backed. We don't pay dividends whatsoever, and we take pretty low salaries uh, to start with. Uh, for no benefit. So we see the benefit at the end when you actually sell the equity. So it's a very different, and I'm not sure that the government has actually understood that and needs to create an environment for the entrepreneur to stay. Uh, the SEIS and EIS are fantastic schemes and, and should uh, continue, and I hope they do continue, because they allow early-stage money to actually come in to invest in in early-stage companies, not just, just fintech. So uh, I still think it's an open debate on whether the entrepreneurs will come to the UK and be in the UK and start their businesses here because uh, or they may start them here and then go and live somewhere else uh, and uh, for example but you need the talent here and the talent also needs to live here after they're sold so the money gets reinvested into the new set rather than just fund managers and Part of the issue of London, still a lot of the funds are run by ex-fund managers and ex-accountants and ex-corporate uh, financiers and, and stuff, which is very different from the US uh, setup, where there's a lot of ex-entrepreneurs. So that's one area I think still an open and to be seen, and that's government needs to give some clear guidelines to, to people to keep them in the country. Uh, the next one was which I think the report sort of address about the, the visas and, and stuff for, uh, for talent to come to the UK. Uh, I was at, a, I was at a, a, a Chatham House conversation with the Treasury uh, 18 months ago before COVID 
to debate about the future of fintech and what would happen post-Brexit and everything like that. And there was about 24 of us around the table. Uh, 80% of us, including myself, uh, are not English. And so 80% of the fintech CEOs and founders that were sitting around that table with the Treasury basically came from Europe and other countries abroad, America, Europe and, and others. And so you've got to create that environment where you attract the founders as well because startups do not happen and fintech startups without founders uh, and that's an important part and founders only come if there's an environment where from a tax side and everything else they can see benefit down the line and there's also got a supportive environment to grow their company outside the uk borders so that's one area which uk plc can really help is the the Foreign Office and the, the, the Her Majesty's Trade Commissioners uh, have fintech on their agenda. And what I do like about them, they're non-political, their Foreign Office uh, uh, function. And they've been super helpful, especially to us in Southeast Asia uh, and Australia. And opening doors have been helpful for us in Europe and Lithuania. And using the ambassadorial uh, or the, uh, or the, the uh, High Commissioner's uh, capabilities in countries too has also been super helpful to us. So that that network that UK has developed over the past several hundred years is, uh, I think, a jewel in the crown that hasn't really come out as much as it should do to allow us to grow internationally and be supported by the by the UK. Uh, not so much government, but the it is government, but it's not the political government. It's the non-political side of the Foreign Office. So that that's an interesting one. Changing listing rules and all that type of thing, it means uh, it's only really helpful if you've actually built a company and things. So that's, uh, I think that's a sort of a bit of a sticky plaster uh, one, which is helpful in some ways, but not really helpful in others. But it only really impacts, okay, if I need to float it somewhere, is the UK a good place to float? So UK capital markets are superb. Uh, there's lots of liquidity. Uh, and there's uh, quality governance uh, on the uh, on uh, on the stock exchange. I'm not so sure about smaller markets uh, and things, but the question is: is where do you float a big tech company? Uh, Nasdaq is probably the premier one in the world. Uh, LSE is more geared towards utility type companies. So I think the issue is not so much about changing the listing rules; it's about how does the London Stock Exchange attract uh, non-utility type uh, stock, and I'm, that's broad brush strokes because, uh, as, you, as you know, I, I traded equities for, for for a while, and so uh, utilities are people like telcos, oil companies, uh, and and the like. And in terms of has a major fintech started when fintech properly started, as opposed to people have rebadged fintech. So Q1 2012, so end of 2011, so the the, out, the output from the, the credit crunch. Has any of those really floated on the stock exchange yet? Funding circle? A funding circle, yes. That's one out of how many of us were around and built. And so that's one thing that I think we need to reflect on more is, is the London Stock Exchange structurally set up and the capital flows into it uh, for our, this type of business? I think they need to address that rather than changing listing rules. Yes, I mean, just to zoom up a bit, one thing I, I probably should have said in the intro, but the intro was too long already, which is that Khalifa's report, 108 pages, has five key areas uh, that he's talking about, some of which you're taking us through now. The first is policy and regulation. The second is skills, coming to the, the visa. The investment, international, as you mentioned, and the national con- connectivity. Just on the investment, 
I was a little bit sort of uh, scratching my head as it talked about completing the funding lad ladder from startups right through to IPOs. Now you've been talking about I IPOs and, and the suggestion about changing listing rules, but you know, will that will that keep the Nasdaq up at night? Um, we don't think so. Uh, but there's lots of suggestions about liberating capital from pension funds and, uh, and all you know, slightly curious stuff. And going back to this sort of idea of a private sector, huh, people that do what they want. I was about to say, but I mean, you know, this has been a bit of big change. I'm not quite sure what government can do to make people invest in fintech or to, or to complete the funding ladder. So if you look at it as a funding journey, uh, the UK has, through SEIS and EIS, has pretty, seed, pretty much uh, angels of seed. It's a great environment. When it comes to Series A and onwards, it's, it's an okay environment. There's still more invested here, although check sizes seem to be going up. But my observation is there's not enough founder-led Series A funds knocking around in the UK. And that needs, and to do that, you've got to keep the founders in the UK. Absolutely. And that's one of the big strengths of the West Coast of America, of course. You know, the people make, make a bloody fortune, the, the bloody fortune gets reinvested, and the wheel goes round and round and round. And so that, that needs uh, addressing. Then you've got, uh, there's a general macro trend anyway, that most of the big funds, BlackRock, Capital, even Marshall Weiss, and, uh, and uh, say, uh, Templeton and others, they now have big private funds for investing in non-listed equity typical minimum check size is 20 million plus they'll bring listed type equity uh, investments style to non-listed and that's a that's a trend throughout the world because there's not enough listings going on I'm putting aside the SPAC uh, spike at the moment so th that that is a trend which government has nothing to do with whatsoever it's just a trend within the, the, the mandate changes within the, the fund managers are allowed to ha allocate X percent into, into privates. And that, that's happening without government and that's happening in the UK. It's probably more happening in the US. Well, just on that one, I mean, I don't believe that, that it's nothing to do with government. So it's always very hard to analyse changes in market behaviour or corporate behaviour um, and say it's because of X. And in fact, almost always is never because of one factor, it's because of many factors. But I've seen uh, research strongly suggesting that one of the factors in making listing less attractive is the uh, utterly onerous state centralist governance rules for how your board runs um, in a listed company. And writing my book last year, I spoke to many of my chums who spend their life chairing audit, uh, audit committees and remuneration committees and, uh, and boards of listed companies. And the onerousness of that has gone through the roof since 1992. And in terms of entrepreneurial uh, businesses, trying to retrain some entrepreneurialism, um, this is why you're seeing listed uh, actually setting up advisory boards, quotes unquote, to get back to doing the creativity uh, and the fun stuff. And, you know, I would suspect that in the world we live in now, but not in the world in 1991, pre-Cadbury, that you, Nigel, wouldn't necessarily enjoy being a chairman or a CEO of, a, you know, say, a FTSE 100. Let's say you take Rails Bank to the FTSE 100. I'm not sure you'd enjoy that life from what I've heard about it, because your skill set is in the creativity stuff. And it's, it, it, there are so many regulations, man. It's like accountancy gets more complicated, tax gets more complicated, law gets more complicated, all the rules around governance gets more complicated. Uh, and anyway, so the, 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 the research I've read from a couple, couple of different pieces of research, mainly from the States actually, was suggesting that a lot of people prefer the relative freedom of unlisted, where you can still do pretty much more what you want than the more dot-to-dot -dot governance. 
Yes, a, a public company govern, has governance structures in there for very good reason. And for people like uh, Wirecard, who actually uh, totally run rushed over governance and stuff. So uh, so th- there's governance there for a reason. I don't think there's any reason why a privately held company can't be the same governance as a publicly held company. The privately held company has far more freedom it doesn't have to apply to two dozen codes of, of stuff it has to do. Governance, absolutely, you, you need governance. But uh, the, the codes are actually quite good. I disagree with you on that. Uh, so, yes, there's quite a lot of stuff to do. But if you run a well-governed company, you don't get in the uh, situation because some of the codes don't also, they're there for good reason, some of them actually don't work. And the UK is actually probably a better place uh, for them in general than, than others. So, uh, and I think you... you uh, and the reason there's not so much a government structure of people going uh, uh, listing on exchange, it's really about there isn't, doesn't seem to be the investor uh, sort of driving stocks to the market because the market has been finally driven at the moment and, and, share, uh, and pricing stuff by essentially quantitative easing and, and lack of yield anywhere else. Totally, yes, totally. And so it's macroeconomics that are driving why listings yeah. aren't really happening. Just on that one, and it, and it does relate to the, the Khalifa report because we're talking about completing the funding ladder and, and through to IPOs. Sadly, I can't send you the two researches that I read last year because I've long since forgotten what they were. So it's not my point. I don't sit on any listed boards, Nigel. I'm not talking about my direct experience. I am talking about having read research in the US which suggests that one of a few factors that is affecting this is the onerous governance. And in terms of Having now spoken to over 100 board directors, uh, many of them on, on listeds, I've spoken to dozens of listeds, not one of whom has told, and these are people who have been accountants their whole bloody life, they're used to doing boring crap, those are their words, not mine. I haven't spoken to one of them who says anything other than that their lives have got far more tedious and far more dot to dot over the past couple of decades, and that a lot of the real politic of the listed Ned is arse covering and derriere covering. And this is just people telling me about their lives. I don't personally know. Anyway, let's park that into one side. We're talking about, there's a, there's a, number, of, there's a number of factors around it. I'll push back on that, because similarly, Mark, I've, uh, I was coached by Sir Robert Malpass, who was on the main board of BP and everything, and, and it's sort of probably more, as you, you refer to him, lax days. He's on the main board of Repsol, he's on ICI, he's, on main, he's chairman of Eurotunnel. And he was my, on the chairman of my first company that I founded as well. So the, while it may be also viewed as more tedious, arse covering and everything else like this, and you say a lot of these are accountants and none of them are actually entrepreneurs uh, themselves, the, the key thing is is looking at the spirit of what they're actually trying to achieve. And uh, what I think a lot of these guys who, who as I say, are ex-accountants, etc., don't really look at the spirit of what the regulation and the governance structures are there to achieve and therefore see the tediousness in it rather than the purpose of it. And that, I think, was more a reflection of the type of people we have on the boards rather than the actual the, the regulation. I think you need to address the diversity of background, diversity of education, diversity of thinking, very much like the US side is more than the, than the UK side. The UK tends to be very uh, a microcosm and they're all very similar. To have people who, who bring the, the, the right governance without seeing it as being tedious so they understand the principles of it. Actually, I disagree with that. Well, anyway, we're getting a a slight tangent here, and it's been a good discussion to have over a a few beers. I mean, I I agree with what you're saying about the the type of um, 
people. And I was speaking to a headhunter the other day who headhunts four listeds. And he was saying that one of the trends has been, increasingly, they want an ex-audit partner for the board. Anyway, the point being, there's a bunch of reasons why that is actually the trend in terms of recruitment at the moment. I'll give an example. Uh, head of, um, oh, one of the big fours uh, insurance thing. has thousands of people reporting to him uh, in London. I spoke to him about a big company uh, insurance. He said he's uh, often asked for out-of-the-box thinkers, people who be entrepreneurial, people who uh, um, do the spirit. He said he suggested time and time again, and he said not one of them is, is ever hired. So there is a complex system here, which is meaning that whatever the reasons are, it's going one way uh, rather than another. Anyway, that was just a slight aside. I was pushing back on your, push, on your pushback, saying that govern, government has nothing to do with it. Um, and I, I, I think so. And you, and you don't. That's, that's fine. Right. OK, so look, we, we got um, sucked into some of the, the detail there. And I think that's a, a good example that actually you could choose many of the areas that Khalifa uh, is speaking about. Um, and it's very complex, which is why it's taken some time to look. Um, and uh, as on all topics, reasonable men can differ. And it's uh, only in the discussion of these things that actually one gets somewhere. So Mr. Khalifa had to hear lots of people, had to hear lots of opinions on lots of things. He's pulled together a report um, from my reading of it. A lot of it is quotes below the radar horizon and, and sort of fairly worthy, but not so uh, exciting at the big picture level. What's your big picture conclusion, Nigel? Big picture conclusion is UK needs to reposition itself. And this is a first step as the place to start fintechs and the place to grow international fintechs. And uh, it's a, so it can't be the place where you have access to a huge market. So it has to have that start and grow. And so the macro level thing is the UK has a, a, a lot of marketing of the UK or UK PLC to attract the entrepreneurs and be the place where they can springboard safely throughout the world supported by the UK government. And that, that area, and there's funding things that can be thrown into it, those are all tactical pieces. But until the UK markets itself as that, there's a high risk of it disappearing somewhere else and the entrepreneurs disappearing somewhere else. If they market it and support the entrepreneurs and attract them, especially people who start companies as opposed to rebadge people to be fintech, the UK is in a good place to do it. But these governments rebrand the, comp- uh, the country, reposition Absolutely. the Absolutely. Right. Thank you. So before I put the show, I'd like to thank the listeners out there and my brand part of the podcast, Smart, is transforming pensions and retirement worldwide. Their leading edge retirement tech platform propelled them to success in the UK. Now they're operating on four continents and working with partners like Zurich and JP Morgan. Find out more at www.smart.co. The listedboard.com resources to help you start making your board an engine of growth today. So Nigel, we've uh, disagreed on some things. We've agreed on other things. Uh, we've come full circle in that I entirely agree with your summary there, what the UK needs to do, which is sort of the macro, it's the positioning. Um, but just on the Khalifa report, do you think that it's uh, in general helpful and, t- and helping things in the right direction, even if there are these bigger picture things he wasn't asked to address, which are quite important, very supremely important? The key thing was, it's a step in the, in, in the right direction uh, on, on things. And it's a it's a small baby step. I think there's still the, the real work has to be done to move forward. And I think there needs to be more engagement directly with the CEOs and the founders of the fintech companies, because a lot of the engagement that I observed was with the uh, lobbyists and the PR people, etc., in the fintech companies rather than the CEOs. So I, I think the next step is engage the CEOs and founders and not the and not the PR uh, PR people. 
Excellent. So uh, that's a good uh, conclusion, which is that it's a helpful report. But hopefully this isn't the only thing that government's going to do in a joined up basis to, to help the sector going forward. And sadly, what, what you say then just, just goes back to my cynicism about government, which is that we're getting to the stage where it is PR and, and, and lobbying because government takes an ever bigger role in society. However, uh, for all listeners out there, do check it out. The executive summary is relatively short. Um, a lot of it is uh, useful. Uh, and as I've said in Nigel said in different ways, the big picture is supremely important going forward. So let's hope for all of our sakes that fintech continues to flourish in this country and the government takes it the right way. So thanks for being on the show, Nigel. Thanks. Thanks for listening. If you're in need of a non-executive or advisory director with deep expertise, experience and contacts in the worlds of both traditional FS and fintech, or unique insight into how to make your board an engine of growth today, contact me at mike at mikeballiman.com. If you just need one-off advice in these areas via clarity.fm slash Mike Balliman. We could sit in a bender all day Watching the firelight dance Watching the firelight dance We could walk in the mountains before dawn Watching a happy moon ride Watching a happy moon ride Watch the fire light dance with me, watch the fire light dance.